This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And there Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Here She Comes, a song by Stupid Beautiful Heaven, a group from Lakewood, Ohio, who calls their sound Rust Belt Revival. Stupid Beautiful Heaven is our featured musical artist this week, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you a little bit more about him and let you hear the rest of that song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. All right, Steve, I want you to imagine you're a youngster. All right. And you and your siblings come home from school to an empty house. Your parents are gone, and you don't know it yet, but you are never going to see them again, and you're never going to know why. That happened in Bristolville, a tiny rural hamlet in Trumbull County. John and Shelley Markley, married for 16 years and both in their 30s, were raising their family there on Greenville Road. They had five school-aged children. John supported the family as an independent truck driver. On December 15, 1995, that's just 10 days before Christmas, the Markley children went to school as they always did, Their eight-year-old son, the youngest of the five, was the last to leave, boarding the school bus at 8.30 a.m. But it wasn't business as usual when they got back home. Their 15-year-old daughter, the oldest of the five, was the first to return from school, and she found the house unlocked and her parents gone. In the kitchen, the children found their mother's purse and cigarettes. She was a -a pack-a-day smoker and not likely to willingly be far from them. Their father's watch, which was rarely off his wrist, was found on a kitchen counter. A coffee pot was still on the burner, nearly boiled dry, all signs that they hadn't intended to go anywhere. But there were other things amiss. Upstairs, the gun cabinet, which was always locked, was standing wide open. A small safe in the master bedroom was also open, with birth certificates and other papers scattered around the room. Also missing, their red and silver 1990 Chevy pickup. And perhaps something that 
was a little bit ominous. There was a 1978 Corvette in that garage. It was always covered with a couple of tarps. The tarps were gone. Maybe there was a good reason for all of this, the children thought. They waited for their parents to return and explain it all. Surely they'd be home soon. You see, John Markley was a twin, and his sister had died of cancer just two days earlier. Calling hours at the funeral home were at 5.30 p.m. Their parents had even laid out on their bed the clothes they intended to wear to the funeral. Surely they'd be home in time for that. But they didn't come home. The children went to their aunt and uncle's home nearby, and then to the funeral home, hoping John and Shelley would show up there. But when midnight came and went, there was just no ignoring the possibility that the Markleys weren't coming home at all. At 12.30 a.m., the family called police. Linda Mason, the children's aunt, told reporters the couple could not have left that house voluntarily. John and Shelley loved their children very much and were very protective, she said. They would never go away and leave them unattended. There was some indication that whatever happened, it might have started that morning, just a couple of hours after the children had left for school. The last transaction on the Markley's checking account was at 10.36 a.m. Police learned Shelley had written a personal check for $1,000 made out to cash. She cashed it at Bank One in Bloomfield, that's another Trumbull County community, leaving a balance in the account of $865. More importantly, the bank teller at the drive through window said she remembered seeing the Markleys in their pickup truck. And they weren't alone. John was driving, Shelley was in the middle, and a man the teller could only describe as slender and dark-haired was seated on the other side of Shelley. The close-knit community turned out by the hundreds to help search the area around Greenville Road. Helicopters searched from above, divers checked surrounding lakes and waterways, including Nelson Ledges, Mosquito Lake, and Lake Milton. Meanwhile, police considered whether the death of John's sister could possibly have played any role in this mysterious event. It was the only significant thing that had happened in their lives recently. John was very close to his sister, Bonnie Donaldson. She also lived in Bristolville. He had helped her raise more than $15,000, hoping for a cure for her breast cancer, including sending her to a specialist in Mexico. He was devastated that she had lost the fight. Is it possible he left on his own to deal with his grief? But if anybody truly believed that, they stopped believing it as the hours and days passed without word. If there was a connection, nobody could figure it out. A few days after the couple vanished, the Markley's truck was found. It was locked and abandoned in the parking lot of a hardware store on Elm Street, about 10 miles from their home. The truck was dirty, as if it had been driven off-road. The keys were missing. Inside the cab was the couple's cell phone, and in the bed of the truck, the tarps that had been taken off the Corvette. Christmas and New Year's came and went. Linda Mason told reporters she kept telling the kids their mom and dad would be home soon. But it didn't happen, she said. The thing is, these kids were everything to them. I know Johnny's family was everything to him. 
Family members did all they could to keep their story in the public eye, hoping someone, somewhere, would come forward and shed light on the disappearances. They appeared on the Montel Williams show and the Maury Povich show. Their story was televised on Unsolved Mysteries. Then, a possible break in the case. A man called the Markley family, demanding $10,000 in exchange for information on what had happened to the couple. Authorities staked out a gas station where the family had been ordered to leave a bag full of money. It was actually a bag of rags. And that's when they arrested Stephen Durst, who happened to have been a former co-worker of John Markley. Durst said he didn't really know what happened to them, that he and others were just running a scam. Police learned he was out of work, desperate for cash, and had been telling people the Markleys owed him $1,000. But if others were part of the scam, it never came out. Durst alone was found guilty of extortion and sentenced to four to ten years. On the one-year anniversary of the Markleys' disappearance, authorities shared that they had followed hundreds of leads and interviewed hundreds of people. Sheriff Thomas Altier said while there was no evidence pointing to whether they were alive or dead, his gut told him they'd been murdered. And even though Durst had only been convicted of extortion, the chief investigator on the case, Jane Timko, told an Associated Press reporter she wasn't entirely sure Durst didn't know more. I truly believe that Stephen Durst knows what happened to them, the detective said, and he just won't say. Well, let's bring on board our armchair detective. This is part of the program where we invite an Ohio mystery listener like you to join us for a chat about this case. Well, tonight for our armchair detective, we are welcoming Joe Schwartz of Akron. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us tonight. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, I work for the Akron Summit County Public Library at at least for the next two days here. (laughs) While they're still (laughs) open. (laughs) Yeah, given what's going on in the world right now. Absolutely. Uh, Uh. I do that, and I have a podcast of my own called Still Unknown that is a lot like your podcast where I talk about unsolved cases. Now, I did look at your um, at the episodes that you've done on Still Unknown, and you're kind of national in scope, right? They're not specifically Ohio cases, but... Yes. How do you uh, pick my, them? Just cases that intrigue you? Definitely... Once I'm intrigued by, I grew up watching Unsolved Mysteries, and I've been watching a lot of it since those re-edits came on Amazon Prime a few years ago. And uh, I take a lot of cases from that show, just ones that are still unsolved and ones that uh, grab me and fascinate me. Now, I had given you a choice of cases to pick from, and you had picked from you had chosen this one. What was it about this case that really kind of moved you? I guess the mind frame of the children. I was about, I was in the age range of their children at the time this happened. Oh, um, yeah. And I, yeah, I had never heard of this case, and it just, and I'm more fascinated by missing persons, so I uh, picked this one. 
I can't stop thinking about those kids. I uh, no. the the circumstances of this is just so bizarre. The funeral was that night, right? It was right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you 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 come home, you know, you have that funeral that night. Your parents are nowhere around, and I mean, their clothes are still up, so you figure they're going to come back home. And I, I'm trying to like go through the events of that night through like through their eyes. You know, if nothing had been amiss in the house, I would probably, and you don't know unless you go through this, of course, but I would probably be thinking, well, okay, something's happened, something urgent, you know, I'm going to show up at the funeral home. They're probably going to come there. But I got to say, if I come home and like the gun cabinet is wide open and the safe is open and the purse is on the counter, I don't don't think I'm hesitating to call police. Shelly's cigarettes. Her cigarettes, which she can't be without. There is just something really, uh, you know, unnerving. And, uh, you know, I'm the kind of person that would probably just jump the gun and say, I'm not waiting. You know, I'm calling police right now. Shelly's sister was probably thinking that. But I, I don't know if I can imagine the kids necessarily thinking that. I mean, I would... Myself, I was 13 at that time. I would have found it strange. I believe I would have found it strange. I don't know if I would have uh, assumed something was wrong. You wouldn't make the leap to foul play just because your parents aren't home. Yeah. Right. No. So the sister, there's a, there's a funeral. Mr. Markley's a twin. His sister, Bonnie, has died of, of breast cancer. I could this disappearance have anything to do with her? I know that they had to at least consider it because they did raise money for her, but it sounds like she had probably spent the money. They sent her to Mexico for a treatment. I don't know. Could could there be a relation to that? Well, I had a theory. It's it's not along the lines of him disappearing voluntarily because of him being distraught by her death. Were you able to find any information on what Bonnie herself if she was involved in anything. Bonnie, the sister who had died? Yeah, because I know it said John had no criminal record in his background. Right. Or he did not. Wasn't wasn't known to be involved in anything. I wondered if the person with John and Shelley was someone who the sister was involved with, who she owed him money and since she died, he came to John and was just said, well, you're responsible now for what I'm owed. Well, that's interesting because I thought also interesting that if Shelley was going to write out a check, that she made it out for 1000 and not for everything that was in that account. It's like the guy was asking for a very specific amount of money, and that I didn't quite understand you know, your theory would be one reason why somebody might be asking for a thousand and not everything. Maybe somebody who thought he was owed that amount. And since his sister's death had just happened, maybe if that could be connected. What about the Stephen Durst? A lot of people believe he was just an opportunist. But I wondered, what did what did he look like? Did he match the description of what the bank teller witnessed with John and Shelley? 
I didn't find that publicized, but I'm sure the police asked that right away and looked into that. I don't know the answer to that. I will say we have read cases before and done cases before where somebody tried to ransom information and was not believed to actually had anything to do with the murder or the disappearance, you know, as you called him an opportunist. So that does happen. But I thought it really telling that the modern-day detective who is working on this case is convinced that he had more information than he had shared. I don't know what to make of him, to be honest. Since we don't know if he matches the description of who was with them at the bank, I... I just don't know what to make of him right now. It could go either way with him, in my opinion. I really expected something might come of those tarps that were taken off the Corvette. I thought, okay, somebody's taken those tarps because they're going to—they're moving bodies or they're going to be moving bodies in the near future. But they found those tarps, and I got to believe they would have thoroughly been examined for any kind of prints or fibers or DNA, and I've never seen any suggestion that they found anything on those tarps. So now I'm not even sure what the point of the tarps were. I thought maybe they were taken along as an intimidation tactic, as a, uh, as a threat, that we are going to kill you and wrap you up in this if you don't do what we say. Yes. I also wonder if if they had a secret in their background that uh, John and Shelley or John was secretly involved in some, if, if we're going to entertain the theory that he at, that they left voluntarily, like maybe they did have something in their background that just was a secret. But I, my theory is that they didn't leave voluntarily. You know, the coffee pot was still boiling. Yeah. And I got to wonder how much water was in that, because if this all happened at 1030 and the kids are coming home, 233, whenever they got home, and it was not completely dry yet, it was almost boiled dry, I'm like, (laughs) that must have been a pretty big coffee pot. But clearly, they left the house without, you know, having the opportunity to turn that off. Shelly leaving her cigarettes in her purse and... Right, and just le- leaving everything. So somebody that, comes in the house, what pulls a a gun on them, orders them to open their gun safe, open the safe in their bedroom. Now go to the car, gets them in the car, makes them drive to the bank, takes out a thousand dollars, orders them to drive somewhere, and probably executes them in in some woods somewhere. Yeah, and. Again, with the $1,000, if you're going to run away, why not take everything? Yeah, I didn't understand that. So, I didn't understand that at all. So something something about the $1,000 is, like, too specific. Whenever you hear a specific number like that, you've always got to yeah. ask, you know, why that amount? You know, oftentimes yeah. that's a clue. Yeah, all right. I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm not sure how much was left in their account, but... I mean, if you're going to run away, wouldn't you take everything? Yeah, I think that I mean, was... Take, take the entire amount. Right. There was a little less than $900 left in that account. So if he wanted yeah. money, why wouldn't he just said, 
write it for everything. Well, Joe, uh, if people want to look for your podcast, they can go on to what, just about any podcast app and look for Still Unknown. Yes. You can fo- uh, follow the podcast on Twitter at Still Unknown Pod. There's an Instagram page, Still Unknown Podcast. And I don't have a Facebook page for it yet or anything. All right, Joe. You take care. Uh, you too. Thank you very much. That's it for tonight, campers. Stop by our website, ohiomysteries.com, for photos, links, news clippings, and more on this and every Ohio Mystery episode. Now, how about more on tonight's featured musical artist, Paula? Tonight, we're introducing you to Stupid Beautiful Heaven. The band, made up of friends Todd, Tom, Eric, and Bill, have been going strong for more than a decade. In a recent Cleveland scene story, Todd quipped that he put together the band based on who he wanted to hang out and have a beer with. They get their inspiration from the alternative rock of the 80s and 90s, though I gotta tell you, I picked out a featured song tonight because it reminded me some of the music I love to listen to from the 1970s. They've got a song called Battle Cry of the Aging Rocker, so maybe their music just appeals to the nostalgia in a lot of us. Anyway, look for them on bandcamp.com to sample all their music, and if you have a mind, and the world is cooperating with us by then, they've got a performance scheduled for June 5 in Cleveland at The Happy Dog. Well, how about we have a listen to Here She Comes by Stupid Beautiful Heaven. Turn up the volume, enjoy, and we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery. Here she comes, 60 feet tall, with her heart on her sleeve, and her shaky smile, you can imagine what happens next, but I defy you to look at that face and not fall in love. I dare you to look at that face and not fall in love Oh, here she comes And there
wrote Mistakenly believed You wrote it for me Could we move past My stupidity I'll come back into my hole You can forget that I exist I'll never bother you again Jeff, yes, if you agree Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money. 